right, today we'll <coughs> look at a portion of scripture found in the book of Matthew chapter 2. One of the great passages concerning <coughs> the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 1. Matthew 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, that thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. <coughs> Excuse me. And when you have found him, bring him word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard that, the king, when they heard, when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed... Behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jer Jeremy or Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, In Ramah <coughs> was there a voice heard, lamentations and weeping, and a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. Let's pray. Father, that we realize that it's the word of God that accomplishes <coughs> changes in individuals' lives. We pray you would help me to cut it straight today and to keep my thoughts clear. And Lord, uh, most of all, we pray that 
you honor your promise that the word of God does not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the, the dark side of Christmas. Many messages are given about the babe in the manger and the angels receiving the great tidings of, from heaven uh, to the shepherds. <clears throat> but there is a dark side to Christmas, and we find that in verses 16 through 18, where Herod, in wanting no competition as for being the king of Israel, wanted to destroy uh, Jesus. And he was angry when when the wise men didn't return. And he didn't know exactly the time that Christ was born. You'll find there that he wasn't still in the manger, but he was in, they were looking for him in a house. And he has all the babies in the Bethlehem area. And the coast doesn't mean along the seacoast, but it means the boundaries uh, that are around Bethlehem where people would still be close to Bethlehem. And in all that area, there were uh, infants that were destroyed. <clears throat> it's a horrible picture, and especially if you would think about someone knocking on your door, you holding your little boy in your arms, and they taking them out of their arms and taking them and killing them. We have, even in our own news today, uh, in our history of the United States in the last number of years, some things that are very disturbing, and particularly among them are <coughs> uh, school shootings. There have been 48 school shootings this year. Uh, 36 people died and a number of others, 97, were injured. And probably the most notable of last year, this year, took place in Uvalde, Texas on May 24th, where the loved ones of 21 people were informed their child or spouse had been killed. Uh, one of the most horrendous shootings in the United States took place at Christmas time in Newton, Connecticut, <coughs> On Friday, December 14, 2012, 20-year-old Adam Lanza started the day by killing his mother, shooting her 12, or shooting her four times in the head, and then proceeding to drive to Sandy Hook Elementary School, where he's armed with a 223 rifle, and he proceeded to kill 20 innocent children and six adults in two classrooms. Actually, it's hard to find the words to describe such terrible violence. It's barbaric. It's unspeakably cruel. It ranks with the atrocities of Hitler and Stalin and Saddam Hussein and Paul Pot and numerous other horrible men. Christmas that year for many families in Newton lost its joy, children's presents laid under the Christmas tree unopened, and across the world, and particularly across our nation, was the question, what in the world is wrong? 
Of course, gun control then and now is being called for, even though everyone knows that it's not guns that kill people, but it's people with guns. Mental illness is being touted as a possible problem, but we, we need to ask once in a while, what is mental illness? We know what cancer is. We know what's ill when a person gets chicken pox, but what's ill when a person has mental illness? Trauma to the head could affect the brain and affect the person's actions. Illegal drugs can affect the brain, but those are physical problems and not so-called uh, mental problems. And I would submit to you to at least think about the possibility that mental problems are soul and spiritual problems. Men do sick, unspeakable, and cruel things because their souls are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We are evil because at the very core of our nature, there's an evilness about us. We wonder how, in the time of the celebration of the coming of the Prince of Peace, we could have such horrible atrocities done and carried out against innocent children. But I want to point out to you that in our text here, that there were some terrible atrocities done even in this time of the birth of our Savior in Bethlehem. They estimate that the size of the village of Bethlehem, there would have been possibly 20 baby boys that were killed. And so I want us to go today and look into these passages and see if we can find some kind of answer to the Newton tragedy and some kind of answer to what took place in Bethlehem. First, I want to give a little bit of a background. In verse 17 and 18, it talks about a place called Ramah, and it talks about a place where Rachel weeps and how that the weeping of the mothers there in Bethlehem who had the children killed was a fulfillment of that prophecy. But there can be a little confusion about that because there is actually a place called Ramah and not Bethlehem. And it's a place that's not even near to Bethlehem, but it's further to the north. Well, <coughs> while, uh, <coughs> further to the north, it's north of Jerusalem, while Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. But the explanation for that is this, is that Ramah and then Rachel... Rachel had two children. She had Joseph and Benjamin. And when the nations of Israel split into the 12 tribes of Israel split, and there was warfare after that between the, the children of Israel, 10 nations going with Rehoboam and two nations staying in the area of Jerusalem, there at Ramah was kind of a place where it was a dividing point between the 10 and the 12. But what's significant is this, is that the descendants from Rachel that came through Benjamin and the descendants of, of Rachel that came through Joseph split. And here, here although Rachel's dead, her effect and her... her, uh, her uh, 
generation that followed her, they are now fighting each other, and Rachel is weeping. But what does that have to do with Bethlehem? Well, the word Rama is the key, and that is, and we won't be long here, but the word Rama simply means a height. When we talk about Ramoth, Gilead in the Bible, Ramah is, means the, the height of Gilead, that it's a, a hill there. And when we come to Bethlehem, and it says there was weeping in Ramah, Bethlehem was higher. In fact, we know that people, when they went to Jerusalem, they went up to Jerusalem. But actually, Bethlehem is either higher, is still higher in elevation. And so it's talking directly about that in the height there of Bethlehem, in Ramah in Bethlehem, there's mothers weeping because their children had been taken. Now, when we look at this passage, we're going to ponder four things, four important truths that comes from this passage. Truth number one surely jumps out at us almost immediately, and that is the sinfulness of the human heart. This man, Herod, is a horrible, horrible person. At the time of Jesus' birth, he's old, he's... Uh, He's becoming more and more sick and fragile. He's been in power for 40 years. But his ruling as king of Israel has been a brutal reign. Over the years, he'd killed many people that he suspected were trying to usurp his power. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his mother-in-law. Maybe lots of people would like to do that. I don't, I've actually always jokes about mother-in-laws, but my mother-in-law was a blessing. He killed his wife. He thought his wife was trying to overthrow him or do something against him. And he killed her when he was only 44 years old, and it seemed like that that, that drug him down the rest of his life all the way to 70 Herod the Great was known, as I said, as a killer. Human life meant nothing to him. The great historian, Jewish historian Josephus said that he's barbaric. Another said that he was a pervert. 41 years into his reign, and even knowing that he did not have long to live, he ordered that his sons be killed by strangling, for he thought they were trying to overthrow him. Caesar Augustus, who was ruling in, in Rome at that time, made this statement, it's safer to be Herod's sow than his son. Now before we get too carried away with Herod or Adam Lanza in Newton, Connecticut, let us realize that in the heart of all of us, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. The mankind's hearts are capable of the most atrocious sins. I've illustrated this truth before to you through a man by the name of Yehiel Benur. And permit me to do it again. Back in the days of Nazi Germany, Adolf Eichmann devised a plan to systematically destroy 
the Jews, a Jewish man by the name of Yehiel Demur survived the concentration camps and testified against Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials when he was tried in absentia because he'd escaped Germany and was hiding in Argentina. Years later, the Israeli Special Forces, there's a great movie about that, but Israeli Special Forces captured Eichmann in a daring raid and brought him to Israel from Argentina to stand trial. Denur attended the 1961 trial as a witness. When he saw Eichmann brought into the courtroom, Denur began to sob uncontrollably, and soon he fainted and fell to the floor. Why? Was it hatred? Was it fear? Was it the horrible sight of this man and the memories of the concentration camps? Well, he was interviewed by Mike Wallace on the 60 Minutes show, and Denier explained that during the war, he had feared Eichmann because he saw him as someone who was fundamentally different than what he was. But now, seeing him stripped of all his Nazi glory, Denier saw Eichmann for what he really was, just an ordinary man. And he said, I was afraid concerning myself. I saw that I was capable of doing this that he had done. I saw myself as a man exactly like he. And that is why I collapsed on the floor. Mike Wallace has summarized that whole interview with six terrifying words. Eichmann is in all of us. Listen, there's something fundamentally wrong with us. And that's because we're linked to a man named Adam. For by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. I know I, and I think you, we want to paint a good picture of ourselves. But Jesus said, just to be angry with another without a cause is to already have committed murder in our hearts. Understand this morning that hell is not just for Eichmann. But those who refuse to admit their sin and repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be punished by eternal God forever in eternal hell. You see, sin is a very serious matter with God. Over the years of preaching at Fairbanks Correctional Center, I've met some very evil men. Some of you, the history kind of goes on, and these names aren't familiar, but there was a guy in there named Arvin Kangas. 
Orvin was the father of a young teenage boy named Nathaniel Kangas. They shot two Alaska state troopers in the back, killing them in Panama. Arvin was an evil man. The influence that he put upon his son and the brainwashing that he gave his son ended up with Nathaniel Kangas being sentenced to 203 years in prison. We got to preach to Nathaniel. He's heard the truth. Another man in the correctional center by the name of Connor Lee Grobel, who at 22 killed two elderly women and burnt down an apartment complex on Garrity Street in Fairbanks. He was one of the most evil men I've ever known. I, I was afraid when he came into the chapel to be preached to, I don't know what he was there for. It wasn't to listen to the gospel. I was genuinely afraid of him. And he was sentenced to 85 years in prison. But let me say to you, with Kangas and Grobel and I stood before the throne of God today in our natural state, it could be equally said of all of us, each one of us, that your heart is deceitful of all, all things and desperately wicked. It could be equally said of all of us, they are all gone out of the way, they all things together become unprofitable, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. It could be said that no you, now we know that the things, whatsoever the law saith, it says to them under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Listen, the sentence upon mankind, the sentence upon you this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and repented of your sins, you're guilty. We're not, listen, we think this idea that we're standing on trial, we're living our life on trial, and somehow our good works will outweigh our bad works. No, we've already been tried. You're guilty. Something has to happen to help us get out of that. And that's what the Christmas story is about. Deny it if you want to. But you're denying God's word. As Mike Wallace said, there's a little bit of Eichmann in all of us. And actually, <clears throat> there's a whole lot of Adam, a whole lot of Adam in each of us. And so the first great truth that I gained from this passage is that there are evil men in this world. And when I go to the bathroom mirror and look in it, I realize that man's hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and without the grace of God. I'm condemned. The second great truth we find in this evil event is exactly uh, why Christ was born in Bethlehem. 
the playing out of man's sin and the slaughter of innocent babies speaks of the desperate need for man to be rescued from himself and rescued from God's wrath against sin. Salvation is a matter of being saved from our sins, but being saved from the consequences of our sins. Why do I need to be saved? Because the wrath of God abides upon me. And that's exactly why he came to earth. You see here in chapter 1 and verse 21, and that she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Listen, sin is an issue. Sin must be dealt with. And only God can take it away. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. In a horrible way, the actions of Herod and Lanza remind us that the only cure to prevent such horrible acts is salvation found in Jesus Christ. Only Christ can give you a new heart. Only he can bring about conversion. Only through repentance and faith in the cross work of Jesus Christ can a person say that all things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. As human beings, we like to compare ourselves among ourselves. We like to say, I could never kill babies as Herod. But when we line ourselves up to God's standards, it's not just about killing babies. It's about God's standard. For we know what shall the law saith. It says to those that are under law that the whole world with their mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty. Perhaps some have lesser sins and some have greater sins and surely we'd call the acts of Hitler and Herod and Lanza great, terrible acts of sin. But you see, God is so holy, so holy that all sin offends him. The tiniest white lie <laughs> offends him. The problem is not with God, but the problem was with man. And so today, you know, this seems kind of maybe a downer message, but listen, you're not going to understand why Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the greatness of that and the wonder of that and the glory of that until you understand the depths of wickedness that lies within the souls of men. And only God can change that. And so first we just remind you of the sin nature of man, and secondly, remind you why Christ had to come, because he had to have to, he was the only one that could save us from our sin. And thirdly, I want to say to you that this passage tells me that God's still in control. He's still in control. When events like those that occurred in Bethlehem and in Newton, people ask the question, Where's God? 
Why did God allow this killing of innocent kids in Newton, Connecticut? Why did God allow the mothers to have their babies ripped from their arms in Bethlehem? Why? Is he too weak to do anything? Is he a God that does not care? Why did he allow it to happen? Well, let me first of all remind you that God did not kill anybody in Newton. And he didn't kill any babies in Bethlehem. They were killed by men with the sin nature of Adam. But here's the problem. Because you and I live in a world where we believe in the supremacy of man. That we're at the top of the food chain. That we need to have the answers. That you need to reply to us. We ask God, why did it happen? Why has God been unfair? Why has God turned his back? Why did God not intervene? But you see, we're asking the wrong question. The question that needs to be asked is this. How can a God who sees all and knows all and knows exactly what I did yesterday and my thoughts and my rebellion and my sinful nature, why did he not kill me last night in my sleep? Why was he merciful? Until you ask the question that way, we think that somehow the problem is out there someplace, someplace out there beyond me that this whole world has gone crazy and, and, and there's something, somebody's got to do something to this world. And, and I, when I ask the questions that way, why, why God are you allowing this to happen? Why is this going on? I hold it at arm's length. When in reality, the problem is I'm a sinner. And there's nothing good about me except what God can do in and through me and make of me. Listen, God proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Until we ask the question that way, somehow we believe that people who deserve something better, we deserve something better when we deserve the wrath of God. We see mankind want a God. We want a God who is all-powerful. I want a God who's all-powerful. I want a God who can get me out of my jams. I want a God who can provide for me. I want a God who can take care of me. I want a God who can give me health and wealth, prosperity. But I don't want a God who's sovereign. That's 
follow. I don't want one who rules over me. And the Bible says this, if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Man is not the top of the food chain. Nowhere near it. He's not the top of the class. God is sovereign. And we'll answer to him. And he won't answer to us. And aren't you glad that we have a sovereign God who's merciful and loving and willing to send his own son to die in my place. How dare God to allow the babies in Bethlehem to die We need to come to the place to understand instead of questioning God, we cry out in thankfulness that He extends mercy. You see, God is not going to be a judged, He's not going to be judged by my agenda. Even as a Christian, even being saved for many years now, sometimes I want things done according to my agenda. And God says, I'm not going to be held to your agenda because my way is the best way. But he's still in control. Note, the times that Mary and Joseph were warned. In other cases, in 2.12, and being warned of God in a dream that they would not return to Herod, they should not return to Herod, they depart into their own country another way. In verse 13, and when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take thy young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. God's still in control. In verses 19 and 20, but when Herod was dead, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take thy young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead with, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. God's still in control. In 22, and when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of the father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. Over and over, God is leading and guiding and warning and those. Today, we have the word of God that guides us and the spirit of God that leads us and we're not vocally hearing uh, God speak into our ears. God's still in control. And because people got killed in Newton doesn't mean that God is absent. He's not AWOL. He's still in control.
God's providence. Providence warned Joseph and Mary to flee. And there's a question on one level I have no answer for. Why didn't God tell the rest of the mothers to flee? I don't have an answer for that. And you don't either. But I do know this. God had a bigger plan. And it's a plan that reached down to me. I understand there's this little comfort for the mothers of Bethlehem, for the mothers of Newton. There's no explanation for them a year from now or two years from now or ten years from now. But I know that 33 years from the death of the babies in Bethlehem, Jesus died so man would really come. Fourthly, I see a continual battle between good and evil. When Adam and Eve sinned, Satan struck the first blow, and from that time until now, sin has reigned in every corner of the earth and in every human heart. We live in a world of pain and suffering and sin reigning in this world and in the hearts of men. But in the story of Christmas, Though Satan struck a blow there in the Garden of Eden in Bethlehem, God won the day. And 33 years later, this baby as a man is going to fly from the cross outside of Jerusalem. It is finished. Not I am finished, but it is finished. The work of redemption is done. Access to God in his presence is open. Do we have a Savior? And he finished the work of redemption, conquering death, hell, and the grave. And Revelation says, and God shall wipe away all tears. One of these days, the mothers of Newton, if they're really born again, will have their tears wiped away forever. And there'll be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. In Bethlehem, God launched the counteroffensives that's going to end with the bruising of Satan's head and his imprisonment in the lake of fire. 
and our possibility is to be saved forever. What is going on with the weeping in Rama? Strange as it may seem, what is going on is Christmas. The sinful heart of mankind is being exposed. The reason why Christ had to be born, the power of the providence of God, the continual battle between good and evil. Jesus was born to die even as death stopped him at his birth. But the man who tried to kill Christmas and almost did, but he didn't, Herod, the great slaughterer of infants at Bethlehem, but he didn't get the most important one, God saw to that. Herod had murdered thousands in his lifetime, but he couldn't murder the most important one. Herod stands as a symbol for the kind of world Jesus came to save. But he stands as a symbol as the welcoming committee <laughs> to the Son of God. Rulers tried to kill him. The Bible says he came into his own, and his own received him not. Herod typifies the cruel and vindictive side of this world and its system. In this world, humanity is cheap. In this world, killing has been accepted. But God came to change the world. But there's one thing about Herod that I think that is commendable. Though Herod was evil as Hitler and a symbol of the worst kind of brutality found in our world, one thing positive could be said about Herod, and that is this. He took Jesus Christ seriously. He knew he was king. At least he heard he was going to be king, and he was serious about it. He believed. He was trying to overthrow him. He cared enough to try to kill him. He knew the wise men worshipped him and only worship belonged to divinity. But today, and maybe sitting here this morning, We have those that ignore him. Listen, you better take your sin serious. And you better take the Lord serious. There's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved.
Jesus said of himself and only of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Oh, Easter at Christmas time ought to be the time that we particularly take it serious. But not knowing whether you'll rise out of your bed tomorrow and live. This morning I got out of bed, tried to get out of bed, set up on my bed, and my whole world spun like a top, and I fell back right in the smack in the middle of my bed. I said, oh, you know, we'll try this again. When you do two things and the same thing happens, then you say, I better stop doing that. <laughs> what am I saying? Will you be here tomorrow? Today is the day of salvation. Today is a day to take Jesus Christ seriously. There's no salvation without him. Herod didn't ignore him. And so the question, as we come to the end here, what will you do with Jesus? If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God from heaven, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, if you believe that Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place, if you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if you believe that Jesus Christ is sending to heaven, if you believe that Christ will one day return to this earth, as King of kings and Lord of lords. I believe all that. But if I do, I need to bend my knee and bow my head and worship him like a shepherd and the wise men did. turn this back to Pastor Bindle, but before we do, will you bow your head and between you and God? If you're not saved, be bidden to him. But if you're saved, can you worship him and thank him for saving a wretch like me? Bow with me.